Hey, I have, a, uh, I have something up here that's going to be new for some of you. See, uh, we, uh, we used to use these things all the time. Anybody know what this is? Yeah, have you seen these before? Yeah, so like for some of the younger generation, like this is the first time you've seen one of these, all right? Uh, because our phones do such a good job with this now, right? But, uh, but uh, who, who, who loves maps, by the way? I mean, maps are fun, right? Um, you know, you, we used to you have them up on your wall. It's like, where should we drive today? You know, you throw a dart at it or whatever. You know, have you done that before? Um, but sometimes, sometimes it's just fun to like open up a map and just look and you just see all the different places. I found one of Oregon. Um, maps are expensive, by the way. I don't know if you, I found that out uh, a couple days ago when I bought this guy. Um, but it, it's fun. You open it up and you just see like all these places in our state that uh, you kind of forget about, you know? Um, I was in, uh, I was over in Central Oregon uh, yesterday, the day before, I went to Smith Rock, beautiful. Get to Smith Rock, such an amazing place. Um, last weekend, um, I drove, we drove past Albany, drove past, um, waved at Pizza More in Albany, and then we went to Enchanted Forest, my first time at Enchanted Forest. Yes, it was my very first time. And I went, and guys, I was, I was surprised at how good it was. I was, ex- I was expecting this, and I got, I got this. <laughs> Not quite this, but I got this, and I was, I was surprised. Enchanted Forest was super cool. Um, I keep hearing about people talking about the, the Wallawas, you know? Like, they're over here, right, in this part of the state. I've never been there. I'm excited. We're, you know, like, that's got to be one of our next trips is to go to the Wallawas. But, I mean, maps are amazing, right? Um, and we've all had the experience of getting lost before. You've taken a wrong turn. And, uh, and then you have to pull out one of these babies. Nowadays, you just pull out your phone. Um, but uh, the thing about maps is when you're lost, when you're lost, when you've taken some wrong turns, the answer isn't to rip up your map, right? That's not the answer. The, the, it wasn't the map's problem. It was, it was that you didn't read the map properly, right? I mean, it's because you weren't consulting the map. It's not the map's fault that you took a wrong turn. Um, you know, you took a wrong turn, and so you don't throw away your map when you take a wrong turn. You have to return to the map, right? Um, last week, last week, we started talking about how the church of Jesus, and when I use, when I'm talking about the church of Jesus, I'm talking about capital C church. The lower C church is kind of like your local neighborhood church. I'm talking about the capital C church, like the church that spans generations, the church that spans geography, just throughout history, the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what we started talking about last week, is that the church of Jesus has definitely taken some wrong turns. has taken actually not just wrong turns, but just devastatingly heartbreaking turns. There's been some things that we look at in church history where we say, oh my goodness. There's things that we look at right now um, in our world where, uh, where, you know, if you're skeptical about church, if you're skeptical about organized religion, listen, I get it. Okay, this is sort of what we, ta- we started talking about last week is we just talked about how, and there's lots of reasons that people have to be skeptical of the church. Maybe you had an experience at some point and it was just so negative and it just colored the whole thing a certain way. Maybe your parents had an experience and so therefore, you know, that just trickled down into, into your experience. Um, certainly we look at headlines. Certainly we look at some of the sexual abuses that have happened in the Catholic church and not just in the Catholic church, but just, you know, we look at some of that stuff and it just makes us sick and it should make us sick. It should make us so sad. There's, some been, there's been some distortions and stuff. So listen, if you're here and you're skeptical about church, and a lot of people in our culture are today, 
Um, a lot of people would say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> I'm, I, I understand there's spiritual things, but the idea of organized religion, I just, I just can't, just can't get behind that. And listen, again, I, I, if you're here and that's how you feel, I, I understand. I get it. I get it. In fact, we're in good company because Jesus, if anybody was, was, uh, was a great critiquer, and is that a word, a critiquer? Um, if, G- if anybody critiqued religion, it was Jesus. If anybody critiqued empty religion, it was Jesus. Jesus had so many battles. And when, when we read about Jesus in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, his biggest, his fiercest opponents are these sort of religious leaders of his day. And it's, and it's because that they were, they were confused about what the whole thing was about. And here's Jesus saying, here I am. It's all about me, but you've missed the forest for the trees. And uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this thing about, about the church. He's talking about the church, and he compares the church to, to salt. You may, maybe have heard this before. He says, he's talking to his disciples, his, his church, and he says, you are the salt of the earth, the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus says, hey, when the salt loses saltiness, it's like, what good is it? What good is it? And that's what a lot of people in our day and in our culture is saying about the church of Jesus Christ. What good is it? Really, like, what good is it? People have those questions. And so we started this sermon series last week. If you missed it, just go back and listen to it online. We're just talking about, okay, but what, what good is the church? And the answer with the church isn't to throw it away, just like you don't throw your map away. The answer is to get back to the foundation of what the church is supposed to be about. In fact, if, uh, we said this last week, last week, but if you're taking notes, um, you know, you can say this. The answer isn't to reject, reinvent, or refurbish the church. That, that isn't the answer. And that's what a lot of people tend to do. It's, we're, I'm just going to reject it. It's just a load of garbage. Or we'll just sort of reinvent it, you know, and just sort of, you know, we'll get together and play Scrabble and we'll call that church, you know, or whatever. We just kind of like, we're so frustrated with organized religion that we just create these things and call them churches. But it's like, man, is that church? Or we just sort of, uh, we sort of like refurbish it. We just sort of like put something over the top. That's not the answer. The answer is this. The answer is to rediscover and to take seriously, to rediscover and to take seriously the foundation that's been there all along. So the answer isn't to throw out the church. The answer is to get to the heart of what the church is supposed to be. And so that's why we started this sermon series. So we're going to take the ball down the field today. Um, what I want to do today is this, is I want to uh, tell you a story, all right? I want to, I'm, uh, I've got my whiteboard up here. I think I, I learn visually, all right? So, um, and actually I teach a class at New Hope Christian College on the mission of the church. So I'm feeling really comfortable with this topic today. And so I'm going to get into professor mode and, uh, and, ha- and have a little discussion that I would have in one of my classes at the school. But I want to just give you a picture of really the story of the Bible. So if you're new to church and it's like, man, the Bi- I, I don't quite know. Listen, I'm going to give you like a 30,000 foot view of what the, what the Bible is about, the main thrust of the Bible. And what I m- mostly want to talk to us about and tell you some stories about our identity as Christ followers. Um, identity is huge. Identity is really huge. Um, I've, I've been reading a bunch of studies lately about how um, long-lasting behavioral change in our lives, if you're trying to change a behavior in your life, if you're trying to change a habit, that long-lasting behavioral change um, will, will never, it'll never be long-lasting if, if it's just driven by willpower. 
it will be long-lasting and will go deep if it's driven by identity. It's identity change, not just willpower change. There's a big difference between the two. Identity is huge. It determines a lot. So for instance, say if you're trying to quit smoking, all right? If you're trying to quit smoking and somebody says, hey, do you want to have a smoke? And what if you said, what if you said, ah, you know what? I'm, I'm actually like, I'm trying to quit right now, so I probably shouldn't. See, it, it, inside that answer that you just gave is, man, I'd really like to, but um, I'll hold out as long as my willpower will allow me to. <laughs> that's, what, that's what that means. I'd really like to, but I should probably not. You know, I should, willpower. As opposed to this, what if somebody came up to you and said, hey, do you want to have a smoke with me? And you say, no, actually, I'm not a smoker. You see the difference? See, if you're trying to, and they've done studies on this, by the way. I'm, I'm preaching to some of you right now. You're like, ooh, this is good. I might try to quit smoking. Um, because, see, if you're approaching quitting smoking or, like, or anything else, if it's just like, oh, I'm going to try and I better not to, it's going to be really hard. It's gonna, you're going to go as far as your willpower will take you. But what if you take a different approach? What if you're trying to quit smoking and you, and you just say, you know what? I'm not going to smoke because I'm not a smoker. I'm not a smoker anymore. That's an identity statement. See, that's way different. Way different. Hey, I don't smoke because that's just not what I do now. As opposed to, oh, I better not, you know, and it might be hard, but, you know, I don't really want to, but I probably will later. You know, such a big difference. Identity, identity, identity. And so I just want to give you a picture of what our identity is in Christ. Okay, so I'm going to draw you a picture. I actually drew this picture um, several months ago. I'm drawing it again. Repetition is never a bad thing. Okay, so check it out. Um, and I might be in the way of some of you. I'll move around. Don't worry. We'll, we'll do my best. I've tried to find my best. I tried all these pens out. This is the best pen, okay? Um, but here's where the story of the Bible starts. This is what we believe as Christ followers, is that you have humanity. I'm going to draw a big H up here. You got humanity. God, well, he creates all things. He creates all things, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's all supposed to point to him and reflect him. But then he creates this one thing that's that's going to reflect him more than, more than anything else. And thus he creates male and female. He creates humanity. He creates these people who are made in his image. And it's their job just to live in this beautiful world that God created. They're going to be partners with him. And so Genesis 1 starts with this beautiful picture of God creating this great world, creating humanity, and saying, saying listen, this is good. There's one rule. Don't try to be God on your own. That's the one rule. Let me be God. I don't want you to be God on your own. Let me be God. That's my job. You do your job. I'll do my job. That's the one rule, okay? This is not a God of rules. This is a God of saying, listen, things will go well for you if you let me be God. But if you try to grab the reins for yourself, it will not go well. Things will break down. And so um, things are good. How long do the good times last? About two pages, all right? It lasts about two pages. And then we have this big comic book kapow, all right? This big kapow that happens where they decide, Adam and Eve, they say, no, we want to be God. We, we, we're going to trust ourselves and not you. And, and just like God said, here's, here's what happens is when human beings did that, that it introduced decay and death, that the, the, the upward motion of creation that God had created, now things are starting to spiral, and we see that it, it doesn't go well for human beings. And what we see is that we see all these just like splintering, all this like decay that happens. It happens in all sorts of ways. Adam and Eve are 
they're, they're mistrustful of each other, and so they have to cover each, uh, themselves from each other. They run from God. There's this separation that happens. But also, also what happens is there's like emotional stuff, brokenness that happens. There's all sorts of relational stuff broken that happens. And as you continue to read Genesis, and you go through Genesis, and you go through Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and you, you, just, you just start to read through the scriptures, and you'll see that things are not going well. And that human beings now are fractured, now they're fighting. And instead of this world where things are supposed to be, where we're supposed to have this deep humility and God's on the throne and we're just following him. And instead it's fracturedness and brokenness. And so things are not going well. Things are broken. In addition to all this, in addition to like what the Bible would call that sin, in the midst of our, in the midst of our sin of us just wanting to be God, what the Bible tells us too is that there's like other forces at work that are like forces that it's hard for us to see. But, but the Bible says that there's like these, these spiritual forces, spiritual forces at work, spiritual forces at work over like that are sort of informing this, that are sort of like creating these opportunities for us just to trust ourselves and not God. And that there's these other outward forces that are, you know, these demonic forces that are just trying to trip us up and pull us back. And that those things, we're battling against those too. But God's got a plan. And out of all this crazy chaos, God's going to pick, God's going to pick like one group of people out of the midst of this. And he's picking them not because they're better. He's picking them not because like they're more important to him than everybody else. But God's plan is that he's going to pick this family and he's going to, in a way, like work with this small family at, like he hoped to work with all the nations. And that his hope was that in working with this one family, that, that, that the nations would see that it, is, it, it pays to let God be on the throne. That it, that's how we're created to work. And that when we don't do that, it all breaks down. Just like if you were to try to pop, pop, pop popcorn in your espresso machine. It's not going to work, all right? If you try to brew coffee in your, in your popcorn machine, it's not going to work. And so therefore, it's just, it's just not going to work when we try to be God on our own. So God pulls out the Israelites. And he says, let me be God. Let me be king. And sometimes they do. And a lot of times they don't. And things, and things don't go super, super well. But God's got a plan. He's going to send somebody out of this family. And his name is going to be, I wrote a J there. Okay, thank you, thank you. I was helping you out. That this Jesus is going to come and he's going to be like the human that we were meant to be but couldn't be. That he's going to be the, is, the Israelite that could be the true Israelite but that the other Israelites just couldn't be. And that through Jesus, that God is going to work all of his covenants out through Jesus. That God's going to sort of create this agreement, this relationship in a way with Jesus that's going to just like trickle back and make all things right again. What's crazy is that the Bible makes this claim and that we Christians believe that Jesus wasn't just a guy, but that he was a guy, but he was also God in the flesh. That in a way, God is sending himself to be the one that's going to be the covenant keeper. And so Jesus comes and Jesus shows us how to live. He shows us what it looks like to follow him. And here's what we know is that, is that Jesus did the most surprising thing, that he not only showed us how to live, but that Jesus died on a cross. What was happening on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die like this? Well, all of this brokenness, all of this shatteredness, all of this selfishness, 
all of this, that what Jesus was doing is he was taking it all upon himself. And he's absorbing it. He's sort of all of this dysfunction and craziness that it's coming, on, coming upon Jesus on the cross. And theologians call this the great exchange. It's the craziest thing that all of our sinfulness and all of our brokenness and all of our decay and all of our death, it comes onto Jesus. And then in an su- even more surprising turn, all of his righteousness and goodness is put onto us. That's crazy. That's incredible. That he just sort of, through Jesus, he sort of makes all things right again. And he takes all this craziness. And by the way, the Israelites, they were supposed to sort of see their vocation as, hey, we're going to be a light to the nations. But like what happens in, in every culture is every culture starts looking at their own culture and thinking that we're better than everybody else. And the Israelites started doing that too. It was the Israelites and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were basically the, the non-Jews. And the Israelites said, no, 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 we're the best. And you guys are, you know, like... You guys aren't the best. And the Gentiles looked at the Jews and said that. And this is one of the things that's happened throughout human history. Is that human beings, we, we look at ourselves. We look at what we do. And we look down our noses at everybody else. This is, the, this is the fuel for racism in our culture. This is the fuel for greed in our culture. This is dog eat dog. Everybody's got to get to the top. And it just destroys everything. And Jesus takes it all. He takes it all on the cross. And it doesn't even stop there. That three days later, he, uh, how, he sunbeams. That's what I'm going to do, all right? Here's my sunbeams. Jesus rises from the dead. And in doing so, it's like he's paving the way for us to have a new, new life in him. And so here's what happens. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he pays for our sins, but also he gives us this new resurrection life. That this new family is born. And it's this new family that starts down here at the cross and it extends out. And it's this new group of people now who are, get to live kind of like how God wanted the Israelites, Israelites to live. Remember, God was going to call the Israelites out and he was going to work through them to be a blessing to the nations. But it, it, was, it was destined to fail. Jesus comes and does it all. But now... We live in this privileged time in history where we get to see what Jesus did and we get to recognize that he's created a new people, a new people, not shaped by the ways of the world, not shaped by spiritual forces and powers. No, 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 we've left all that behind. Now we're shaped by Jesus, who he is, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Those are the things that tell us who we are. Those are the things that give us a new hope and a new identity and a new future. Do you know what the Bible calls this group of people? Calls it the church. The church. We are the church. And our identity is in Christ. Every, uh, if, and Jesus, this is what he talked about. If you were to just poke in on Jesus in any of his conversations, you'd probably hear him talking about The kingdom of God. That's what he'd be talking about. He'd be talking about the kingdom. And he'd say, you know what the kingdom is like? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it grows. And, you know, the kingdom of God is like this and the kingdom of God is like that. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. And he's proclaiming, I'm the new king of this new kingdom. And Jesus is trying to explain this this beautiful new world, this beautiful kingdom where the church gets to 
follow Christ, where our identities are, are wrapped up in him and not in the rest of the world. And it is a tough tension because even though we're sha- our identities are shaped by a different story than the rest of the world, the, the rest of the world, even though we're, we're citizens of a new kingdom with a new king, then, then, then the rest of the world might recognize, we, here's the tension, is that we still yet are walking in the midst of living in two kingdoms. We live in this world, and, but yet we're citizens of the kingdom. How in the world are we supposed to live in, through both of those kingdoms? Um, that's next week's sermon, by the way, all right? So you come for that one. Uh, but this is the church. This is our identity. This is who, this is who we're supposed to be. Um, so here's what I want to do. Um, I want to read from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, because here's what you're going to see. Paul, he's writing to this, this church in Ephesus. They're wondering, what does it look like to be the church? How do we follow Jesus in our culture? And just look at what happens. Look at what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Because as we're going to see, he's talking about, he's talking about all of this. He's, he's just going to identity. He's going to identity. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to almost read the whole chapter to you. Are you ready? Yeah. It's like story time. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. He's Paul, one of the greatest apostles and leaders. He says this, as for you, you were dead. In your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. He says, you used to live this way. Like, this is the kingdom that you were in before. But then he says this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see what he's saying? I mean, he's saying, listen, you used to live this way, but now you're a part of a new family. And you know how you got here? He says, you didn't get here because you like acted good to get in. You didn't get in by sort of performing your way in. He says, you you got in because, because of God's grace. And all you had to do was just acknowledge that you need grace. All you had to do was just have faith in Jesus and what he did for you, what he did on the cross and how he gives us new life because of, because of Easter Sunday, because of the resurrection. That's all you had to do. It's all because of his grace. Do you see the way in to this new family? It just means being humble. It just means saying, man, that's the family I want to be a part of. I used to live this way for myself, for other things, but now I want to live this way. And the way that you get in is just looking at the cross and looking at the empty tomb and saying, that's who I want to be. By the way, the early Christians, you know, they had some like, like an initiation, some initiation ceremonies to get in. You know what they were? First, communion. We take the blood the, the juice, the wine, it represents God's, Christ's blood for us. And you take the, the bread, it represents his body. And we just come to that meal over and over again. That's what we do almost every Sunday. And we're remembering the cross. And then 
the other entrance, entrance sort of like, you know, thing to get into this new family is baptism. Water baptism. And what's water baptism? It's you're going down into the water and it represents Jesus going into the grave. And you're going into the grave with him. And you come out of the water and that represents now you've got this resurrection life that you didn't have before. Those are it. Is you just have faith. You just have faith. And then there's these really cool practices that we have as Christ followers. We come to the table over and over again, remembering his body and his blood. And we get baptized. And it's this entrance into this new kingdom where Jesus is the king. And then Paul goes on. Listen to what he says. This is incredible. Starting in uh, verse, what, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you, were, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Um, and the two groups is like, remember it was like these, there was the, the Gentiles and the Israelites. But God is going to create peace in the midst of all this. And listen to what Paul says. It's so interesting. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. Ooh, listen, listen. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. A.K.A. the church. A.K.A. God's people. The kingdom where, where we're living in, in, with his rule and reign over our lives. One new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. It's all about identity. If, you, if we can grasp that as the church, this is where we live now, with Jesus as the King, then this has far-reaching implications. This colors everything that we believe. See, when you live in this kingdom, you view money a certain way. So you used to view money in this kingdom, but now you view money a certain way when you're a part of the church. It's just different. You view money differently. You view sex differently. Your sexual ethics are t turned around and changed because now, no, 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 I'm a part of the family. No, why don't you just sleep with her? Well, well listen, it's, it, oh, I'm trying. I probably shouldn't, but, I, but uh, you know, I'll try not to. No, no, no. It's no, no, no. I don't do that. Why? Because I'm, I'm a part of this new humanity. Like this is who we are now. This is who we get to be now. You see, it all drives out of identity. How you view, how you, how you view politics comes out of what, is it, what does it mean to be the church? How you view every, how you view your work. What do you do for your job? I don't know what you do for your job. But when you realize that you're a citizen of the kingdom, you're going to look at your job in a completely different way. It just colors everything. It has far-reaching implications. Here's what I want to do with the rest of my short time is I just want to tell you a few stories and read you a few things. I've been really, really, uh, because maybe the question is, is maybe you're here and you're like, you're like, okay, that sounds nice, this new humanity where like, where it's grace and forgiveness and, and God's seated on the throne and Jesus is the king. That sounds nice, but I just don't see it anywhere. Like, I just don't see it. 
Where am I supposed to see that beautiful, shining picture of the church of Jesus? Like, I don't know if I go down to the local church, like, if I, if I see that or not. I just want to give you some glimpses into seeing this kingdom at work. I've been really captured lately by the life of a, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I've been reading a lot of, these, a lot of his, uh, his, his biographies and just, just getting so much out of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was, uh, was a theologian and a pastor in, in Germany. And he was, he was hanged in 1945 as, because he was a Christian pastor and because that he was a part of the resistance against the Nazis. And a part of some of the, the plots to try to, to try to get Hitler out of out of the rule and reign in Germany. And he was hanged in 1945. But before that, um, here's what we know about Bonhoeffer is uh, he got his, uh, he did his doctoral dissertation at the age of 21. Um, I don't know what you're doing with your life at 21, some of you. But Carl, uh, but uh, Bonhoeffer gets, does his, gets his doctorate at the age of 21. Karl Barth, who's the, the most influential theologian in the 20th century, said this about his doctoral dissertation. Karl Barth said that his doctoral dissertation was a theological miracle. That's what he said. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And so he's pastoring churches, and he, you know, the, the, the temperature in, 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 in Germany is starting to rise, and there's pressure coming from all sides. Are we going to be faithful to Christ, or are we going to uh, compromise and, uh, and, you know, sort of turn our eyes away from what's happening with, with the Nazi regime. And in 1933, here's what happens is he meets this. By the way, I had a picture of Bonhoeffer. Did you put that up? I forgot to say I had a picture of him. There's Bonhoeffer. Um, and in 1933, Bonhoeffer meets this other guy. Um, his name is Friedrich, Fran, uh, v, uh, Friedrich von Bodelschwing. Friedrich von Bodelschwing. And in 1933, he gets an invitation from Friedrich von Vodelsching to go and check out this, uh, this, this, this community that Friedrich had put together and made. And this community that he had put together was, was a group of people with disabilities, with physical and mental disabilities. Here's what you got to know is we usually when we think about the, the, the Nazis, we think about them coming and exterminating all the, Jew, all the Jews. But it didn't actually start with the Jews. It started with lots of other people groups. And the very, one of the very first people groups were the people with physical disabilities, with mental disabilities. Um, I've got a quote. It says, um, ev but even in 1933, the anti-gospel of Hitler was moving toward the legal murder of these people who, like the Jews, were categorized as unfit, as a drain on Germany. The terms increasingly used to describe these people with disabilities were useless eaters, and life unworthy of life. And when the war came in 1939, their extermination would begin in earnest. And so here's a little bit about this community that Bonhoeffer gets to go and look at. And it just shaped his life. It just in inspired him so much. Um, it was called, it was called the, the Bethel community. Um, Bethel, Hebrew for house of God, was the fulfillment of a vision that Bodelschwing's father had in the 1960s. It began in 18, um, sorry, in the, in the 1860s. It began in 1867 as a Christian community for people with epilepsy. But by 1900, it included several facilities that cared for 1,600 dis disabled persons. The younger Bodelschwing took it over at his father's death in 1910. And by the time of Bonhoeffer's visit, it was a whole town 
with schools, churches, farms, factories, shops, and, and housing for nurses. And at the center were numerous hospital and care facilities, including orphanages. Bonhoeffer had never seen anything like it. It was the antithesis of the Nazi worldview that exalted power and strength. Listen to this. It was the gospel made visible, and I love this, a fairy tale landscape of grace. A fairy tale landscape of grace. Bonhoeffer just, he's, he's there, and it's this whole town of people, right in the heart of Germany, where just, and where these people are just counted as nothing, and here are these people just dedicating their lives. And he looks at it and he comes away saying, This is like a fairy tale land of grace. I love that description. He's describing the kingdom of God, where the weak and the helpless were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. And so he was inspired by this, and he was so disillusioned by the German church that he started a resistance movement called the Confessing Church. And they called it the Confessing Church, Bonhoeffer did, because they were confessing very boldly that Hitler is not the, in charge of the church, Jesus is the, in charge of the church. And so they were called the Confessing Church, and they were getting um, pressure from all, si from all sides, from everywhere. And so Bonhoeffer, he decides to start an underground seminary, uh, an underground Bible school. And it was just a small school at the time, 30, 40 students tops. And he starts this underground seminary, and his vision is inspired by the, by the, the, the village that the Bodelschwings created. He was inspired. He's going to create this school of young Christ followers who are just going to embody the gospel in this little school. That's being surrounded by the Nazi regime and surrounded by these, these, these anti-gospels of power. That he's going to create a, a contrast culture. A different group of people where they're living together in community and they're following Jesus and they're reading the scriptures and they're being formed by Christ. He's trying to, he's trying to create in the midst of this craziness this new humanity of people that are going to follow Jesus and let him be king. Um, it's called Finkenwald is the name of the town. You can still go there today. Um, it's, north of, it's north of Munich. And uh, he starts this little community this is where he writes two of his most famous books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. It's where he writes them here as he's training these pastors and leaders. And um, the, the biography that I was reading talks about this moment where some of his buddies read his book Life Together. And they read it and they say, my goodness, Bonhoeffer is like, well, he's going to get himself killed, first of all. Like, I mean, he shouldn't be saying this kind of stuff. And then second, you know, he's kind of like taking this community thing, this Jesus community thing, too far. He's kind of like going overboard with it. And so they kind of like had a little intervention. Uh, so one of his buddies shows up at Finkenwald and says, Bonhoeffer, like I get what you're doing here. It's really cool. But like, aren't you like a little, isn't it a little bit too much? Like a little bit too much, Jesus, maybe? Like just a little bit too over the top. And so what Bonhoeffer does is he takes his friend. He takes him down to the river. He gets in a boat. They, 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 they row across this river and he, he takes them on a little hike and he takes somebody up onto this little hill and he takes his buddy up to the top of this little hill and, and he look out and in the distance they can see a landing strip where the Nazi planes are landing, where they're being refueled and restocked and they see the, the soldiers running around and marching in formation. And he has a moment on top of the hill. And this is what Robert Marsh says in his, in his biography, Strange Glory. He says, Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training. He's looking at the Nazi and he says, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. And then he says, 
It will be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline of life among the Christians if the Nazis are to be defeated. You, he tells his friend, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. And so they go down from the hill and they get in the boat and they ride back to Finkenwald. And John Tyson says this, he says this, here is Bonhoeffer pointing at a ragged little school for preachers and then pointing at Hitler amassing his troops. And in the prophetic tradition of contrast, he says that the people of God must be stronger than the discipline of the world around us. This must be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer is looking at the Germans with their planes and their strength and their power. And then he looks behind him at this little tiny dinky school of Christ followers. And he says, listen, I'll tell you what. You want to know why I'm so passionate, Bonhoeffer says? You want to know why I'm so committed to, 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 to following Jesus and creating this, this kingdom? Is because, listen, this, this little raggedy school for preachers has to be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. Not because we have planes or bombs. It's because that you see their discipline. You see them marching and, and see, all, see all the, the discipline that they're giving their lives to. We have to give our lives to something bigger, something more beautiful, to something better. Nobody remembers any of those people's names necessarily in that school, but I'll tell you the confessing church rose, rose in the ashes of this empire, this Nazi empire that fell. I love the story of Bonhoeffer. He was hanged in 1945, two weeks, two weeks before his concentration camp was liberated. Um, <clears throat> that's a nice story, Pastor Brooks, about the Nazis and about this must be stronger than that. Um, but do we see this kind of stuff today? Like, is the church doing this today? Is the church being the church today? Yes, yes, yes. The answer is yes. I found a great article from the New York Times about a guy named Nicholas Kristof. The, the title of the article is Evangelicals a Liberal Can Love. This guy, Nicholas, he's, he's not a Christian. Um, here's what he writes. Listen to this in the New York Times. He says, liberals believe deeply in tolerance and over the last century have led the battles against prejudice, prejudices of all kinds. But we have a blind spot about Christian evangelicals. They constitute one of the few minorities that on the American coast and on university campuses, it remains fashionable to mock. Scorning people for their faith is, an intrinsically, is intrinsically repugnant. And in this case, it also betrays a profound misunderstanding of how far evangelicals have moved over the last decade. Today, conservative Christian churches do superb work on poverty, AIDS, sex trafficking, climate change, prison abuses, malaria, and genocide in Darfur. In parts of Africa where bandits and warlords shoot or rape anything that moves, you often find that the only groups still operating are doctors without borders and religious aid workers, crazy doctors and crazy Christians. In the town of Rutshuru in war-ravaged Congo, I found starving children, raped widows, and shell-shocked survivors, and there was a determined Catholic nun from Poland serenely running a, a church clinic. 
Unlike the religious windbags, she was passionately pro-life, even for those already born. And brave souls like her are increasingly representative of religious conservatives. Listen, we can disagree sharply with their politics, but to mock them underscores our own ignorance and prejudice. Wow. Is the church being the church? Oh, man, you bet. The church is being the church. Is, the ch is, is this new humanity happening here at Westside? Oh, you bet. You bet. I just like, I wasn't even, I didn't even plan this part of my sermon. I figured I would just like look out and just see some of you. I see, I see, you know, Ron, you going through what you've gone through, Ron and Connie, everything you've gone through, and the church just, the ch just being the church for you. And it's an honor to do that. I see, I mean, who else do I see? I don't know. Um, Caitlin, the, the, you're, I see you over there, but you're, uh, I'm so grateful for our friendship and how it started, and you didn't know anything about God. And because of a funeral that you went to, that was your first time in a church, was at a funeral, and I was given the eulogy, and we got lunch afterwards, and we just talked about how, what, what God is like and why I follow him, and you never look back. You're just, you're following Jesus. I'm so, so proud of you. So it's the church, be in the church. Um, oh, man, I don't want to, you're nervous now. People are like, what, what's he going to say about me? Oh, no. Uh, um, oh, I could just, guys, I could just go through this room. Like, Bethany, I see you. I, I, what, what the, the church is coming and rallying. We're, we're, maybe Sarah's in the room. You, you're going to the mission every Tuesday night to serve food. for. There you are, Sarah. You're, you're being the church. You're being the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, guys, I see it. It's here. The kingdom is just being built in our midst. What a beautiful thing. Here's how I want to close. Hey, band, will you come up? And uh, as they're coming up, and uh, don't get distracted by them, I want you to look at me. I, here's just what I, what I want us to do to close today is um, I want to talk to the Christ followers first. You're, you follow Jesus. You're, you're a part of this new humanity. And I just want to ask you, I just want, I just want to ask you a serious question. Are you, being, are you being formed? Are you being formed by this? Is this what's forming your life? Is the cross of Jesus and the resurrection bringing new life? Like, is, is this the thing that's forming you? Because, listen, it's so easy to be a part of the church, but still, but still live back here. Just to still be back here and just be formed more by Netflix and be informed more by other things than be informed by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, I get it. It's a struggle. It's a battle. I know like more lyrics to like rap tunes from the 90s than I do scripture, I think. And that's like, and that kills me sometimes. I'm like, what's wrong with me? I need to get Christ in me. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way. Listen, listen, are you letting the, this, this new humanity form you? Let it, let it. This is the family you're in. This is the hope that we have. Let it shape every part of you. And then I just want to talk to, maybe you're here today and maybe you, you, um, you don't know, you don't know where you stand. You're not sure where you stand with Jesus. You're not sure where you stand with the church. Um, I, I just want to, maybe there's an opportunity this morning. Maybe all your questions aren't answered. Maybe you got lots of questions about Jesus and who he is. But maybe just a, a, a morning like this morning, you look at this and you say, I want to be a part of that family. I want to be shaped by the cross and not by the world. I want to be shaped by the resurrection and not by anything else. I want that to be formed in me. I want Christ to be formed in me. Maybe that's the cry of your heart this morning. 
I just wanna give you a chance to respond to that. Enter into the family. It's a new day. It's a new season. Would you have the courage to do that?